You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When I go grocery shopping, I go into the grocery store with a very particular perspective. I'm in the habit of paying very close attention to the items that I am selecting. If I'm in produce, you can best believe that I'm digging around the most beautiful fruits and and digging around for the most pristine vegetables because I don't want to spend my hard-earned money on some jacked-up, rotten piece of fruit. I don't want damaged goods. If I need some sugar or some flour, I don't just grab the bag in front. I slide it to the side a little bit, and I reach in there a little bit, and I I try to get a hold of one of those perfectly uh, put-together bags. It has no holes in it, no wrinkles, no folds. Why? Because I don't want some some bag of flour that's going to have, you know, stuff running out of it or a bag of sugar that's leaving the trail so all the ants can find their way to my house. My kids have that covered. I don't get jacked up bags of flour or sugar because I don't want damaged goods. If I'm looking for a can of beans, I slide the beans in the front to the side and I reach to the back to try and get a perfect can of beans because I don't want a can of beans that's all dented up and the the label's all scuffed off of it. No, I want a perfect, pristine can of beans because I don't like damaged goods. I don't get dented cans of beans. I don't choose dented boxes of cereal. I don't choose items with torn or scuffed labels. I don't choose packages of meat that are leaky. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's leaking red, right? I don't buy stuff like that because I don't want anything that is even remotely close to damaged goods. And on many days, I think that we as Christians think that God looks over humanity like I look over a grocery store. We often think that God is in the habit of digging around for the most beautiful and talented among us because he doesn't want damaged goods. We often act as if God slides some people to the side reaching for the fresh and the pristine because he doesn't want damaged goods. We often think that God avoids the one who's dented and torn and scuffed up and leaky because he doesn't want damaged goods. But the picture that we get of God in the scriptures is that he is not put off by damaged goods, damaged people, damaged relationships, or a damaged world because he loves the work of restoration. The fact is that every human being is damaged goods in some way. But God has not stopped shopping. He has not stopped searching. When you look at the people that he's bringing into his kingdom, it becomes quite clear that though God selects people, God is not selective. And he doesn't need to be selective because he is able to restore whoever he finds regardless of their condition. This episode in Exodus chapters 32 through 34 is a profound picture of restoration, making this passage one of salvation's greatest hits. And we're going to approach this text 
for today through two points. We're going to see the ground of restoration and the glory of restoration. So let's look at the first point, the ground of restoration. Now, last week we covered Exodus 28 and we talked about the priesthood through the garbs that the priests wore. We saw that the clothing of the priests were representative of the kind of ministry that the priest would carry out. The priest carried Israel on his shoulders. Their names were engraved on two onyx stones that were placed on the priest's shoulders. And Israel was on the priest's heart. On the ephod, there were gems that were stuffed down for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And their names were engraved on them. And holiness was on the priest's mind as he did his work, making the offerings of Israel acceptable before the Lord. The, the ministry of the priest was to represent God to the people and people to God. But here's the thing. Exodus chapter 28 was a description of the priestly ministry. But in Exodus chapters 32 through 34, we get a depiction of priesthood in the ministry of Moses. It shows us what priesthood looks like in action. This passage is about that, that fatal golden calf incident. After leaving Egypt, Israel came to Mount Sinai, or as it's commonly known, Mount Sinai, okay? They came to Mount Sinai, and if you're reading through the story of the Bible, what you'll recognize is they get to Sinai, and they're there for two years. It's not until Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, that Israel moves their camp away from Sinai, okay? They camp at Sinai, and while they're at Sinai, the Lord begins his work of forming his people to be the kind of community that he wants them to be on their way to the promised land. He gives them his law or his instruction for the way that they are to live their lives, for the way that they are to relate to one another, their relationships, their transactions with one another. Their social life was governed by the Torah, God's law. They're given all of these instructions for their community. They're given the instructions. Moses is given the instructions for the tabernacle and the instructions for the priest garbs. All of this happens at Mount Sinai. They are at the foot of the mountain. And what happens is we get to this point in Exodus chapter 24 where the Lord calls Moses up the mountain. He says, meet me on the mountaintop. And Moses goes up on the mountain because it's at this point that the Lord wants to give him the law to take back down to the people, okay? But while Moses is up there, the Lord fills him in on some shenanigans that are going on at the bottom of the mountain. Because while Moses is up there, he doesn't know that the Lord is going to call him up there for what will be 40 days, and 40 nights. So Moses kind of goes up the mountain and Israel's sitting there waiting, kind of, you know. But Moses has been gone for a while. And so they start to get nervous. They start to get anxious. They're like, what's going on here? They start that grumbling that they're famous for. And then someone has the bright idea. You know what we need to do? We need to get up out of here. We need to get away from Sinai. And I'm sure some of them had the idea of taking that looped road back to Egypt. And so they come to Aaron. It's, it's sort of like 
the, the mob confronts Aaron and they say, make us some gods so we can roll out of here. We need some God. We need you to make some gods to lead us out of here. Now, I want you to think about that. Make a God to lead us out of here. It's, it's very interesting. So Aaron clearly is not feeling very prophetic at the moment. And so he says, oh, okay, okay, all right, all right. Give me all your gold earrings, right? So all the people start bringing the gold and the earrings and all that kind of stuff. And he begins to fashion this golden calf. So wow, this Moses is up here in God's presence. Just, just enjoying communion with the Lord, receiving all of the instructions that happen in chapters 25 through 31 of the book of Exodus. That's all the stuff that Moses is getting while he's up the mountain. And while he's up the mountain, Israel is losing their minds. They're losing their grip. They're getting afraid. But while this is going on, the Lord lets Moses in on what's happening down there. And he begins to switch the pronouns that he uses. No longer are they my people. They're your people, Moses. <laughs> and there's this interesting interplay. The, the Lord engages Moses in this interplay. And he creates this, this dynamic of engagement with Moses. Why? Because the Lord wants us to see the work of a mediator in real time. He wants us to see the way a mediator operates in the divine presence on behalf of God's people. And so he begins to say that he's done with Israel. He's, he's, bringing, he's bringing Moses in and Moses begins to engage with the Lord, calling out on behalf of Israel. Okay? He's calling out on behalf of Israel and he's pleading with the Lord to not bring calamity on this idolatrous people. We have to remember that all of this that happens in chapters 32 through 34, it takes place before there was an actual tabernacle created. Before the system of sacrifice was actually unveiled to the people. And so that's why what we're left with, what Israel is left with, is the mediation of Moses. The priests weren't operating in the tabernacle at the time. And so Moses begins this engagement with the Lord. And the Lord, after he makes this intercession, this mediation, the Lord relents. And Moses comes back down the mountain with the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He's got them on the tablets, right? <laughs> Moses hasn't quite pictured what is going on at the, at the foot of the mountain. But when Moses gets down and he finally st he starts to hear what's going on and his, his assistants are like, it sounds like war is in the camp. And Moses is like, that ain't war. That's a party. And when he gets down and he sees what's happening, that they're having a feast to their idols, Moses takes the Ten Commandments. He's like, that's it. And he throws the Ten Commandments on the ground. They break. And it's symbolic because they have broken the covenant. And he goes down there and he starts cleaning shop. He starts rebuking them. And finally, after that whole episode is sorted out, Moses says this. He says, y'all stay down here. I'm going to go up and see if I can make atonement for your sins. And so Moses heads up the mountain with Israel on his shoulders and Israel on his heart. As a priestly mediator, Moses ascends that mountain to represent his people to God and to come back down and represent their God to them. 
And what we, what we have here is a question, y'all, that needs to be answered. On what grounds can God restore sinners? That is a question that every human being has to sort out. On what ground does God restore sinners? What we're going to see in this text is that God restores sinners on the grounds of his covenant promise. As the mediator, I want you to see in the text, this is important for your spirituality, friends. Because if you are prone to pinballing around from day to day, and if your emotional state is really gauged off of how well you're performing for the Lord, you will live a frantic and anxious life. It will, it will bury you, that way of living. This is key for your spirituality. As the mediator, Moses appeals to the Lord's covenant promises for Israel's restoration. Look at chapter 32, verse 13. This is what Moses says to the Lord that ultimately ends the conversation, so to speak. He says to the Lord, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Do you see it? Moses appeals to the covenant of God for their restoration. In this section, Moses continually pleads for Israel on the grounds of the Lord's covenant promise. These three chapters, chapter 32, 33, and 34, are punctuated with Moses' priestly intercession. You can look at chapter 32, verses 11 through 14. You can look at chapter 32, verses 30 through 32. You can look at chapter 33, verses 12 through 17. These are some of the things that Moses says. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people. The result emerges in chapter 34, verse 10, where the Lord announces his plan for witness through restoration. One of Israel's most profound ways of bearing witness to the world is going to be through their restoration. That's what the Lord's plan is. The Lord clearly makes plans in these passages to live in communion with sinners. Because if God wasn't making plans to commune with sinners, then the only communion he would enjoy would be with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the heavenly beings. We would be left out. But God obviously has a heart to commune with sinners. That should be good news to you today. That God loves to commune with sinners. Grounded in his covenant love. Listen to this. Witness through restoration. Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? He said that 
I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. This is coming from God to the people who just saw plagues rain down and destroy the gods of Egypt. This is coming to the people that saw the Red Sea parted with the outstretched hand of Moses. And yet I will do more marvelous things. A powerful promise that God makes to his people. But we need to start digging in here. In this text, the restoration of the people is grounded in the Lord's covenant promises and the mediatorial work of Moses as he continues to appeal back to the covenant promises of God because he knows the Lord's character secures the covenant. It is the Lord's character that secures the covenant. That is huge. The Lord's character secures the covenant. The ground of restoration, y'all, is not their promises to try harder. The ground of restoration is not their decision to really get serious and to rededicate their lives and to come down and get baptized again for the fifth time. The ground of restoration is not self-loathing or beating themselves up to show that they really feel bad about the wrong that they did. These are not the grounds. Any contrition or sadness or grief for their sin would have been entirely appropriate. But none of these are the ground of their restoration. And neither are they the ground of your restoration. I know I'm talking sense in here today because I know what happens when you screw up real bad, when you sin in ways that make you surprise yourself. What do you start to do? You start to do this inner bartering with God. God, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be for real this time. As if your change of mind is the ground of your restoration. Have you ever started haggling with God? I remember being a college student before I knew the Lord. And I would go out and get lit up every weekend. And when my head was in the toilet bowl, I'd be like, God, I promise that if you help me, I will never drink again. Guess what I was doing next weekend? God, I promise if you help me, I will never drink again. Empty false promises. And even if they were true promises, it wouldn't have mattered. Because my contrition was not the ground of my restoration. It is the covenant that is the ground. Do you find yourself groveling with God? Groveling like, oh man, like I know he must hate me right now. Like, ah, like how could I even pray right now? How could I even face anybody with how bad I've screwed up? You might be sitting there thinking, I I haven't had an experience like that. Just give it some time. (laughs) Just give it some time. I had a mentor who once told me, we're all out of our, we're all in one of three positions. We're either on our way out of a hot mess, we are currently in a hot mess, or we're on our way into a hot mess. Either way, it's looking like we're going to need to figure out the ground of our restoration. And it cannot be any merits or virtues in us. It's not that. Anybody who's been around the church for any length of time is familiar with the idea that it's not your good works that gets you in how many of you heard that oh i'm i'm I'm, okay okay 
the Christian faith teaches that it's not your good works and your good behaviors that get you in. Christians repeat that constantly. But we tend to fall into this idea that, yeah, we get in by grace, but once I'm in, it's my good works that keep me in. It's my good behaviors that keep me in. As if we just needed the down payment on that trillion dollar salvation mortgage, but we can keep up with the monthly payments on our own. Crazy, right? This shows how blind we can often be to the multifaceted corruptions that remain in our lives, even on our best days. Even on your best days. If you and I could clearly see our sin in its totality for just a moment, we would be utterly shell-shocked, horrified, and traumatized. If you could just get a glimpse of the full measure of your sin for just 10 seconds, you would come away from that encounter with a case of PTSD you would never recover from. You would be so utterly blown away. And then you juxtapose that with all of the days where you think you're doing pretty good. You think you're knocking it out. When it comes time to confess your sins, you can't really think of anything major. And so when we do our confession of sin on Sunday, you just kind of sit there silent, waiting for the time to pass so we can hear the pardon. Right? If you could really see it, you, you would begin to unravel in terror. It reminds me, this is what it would be like. One time when I was a kid, me and a friend of mine, we were playing. We were messing around. For some reason, my friend was climbing on a porta john You see where this is going. He fell through. <laughs> Not, but I bring this up for this reason. I could see through the tears of laughter that there was nothing more urgent to him at that point than getting clean. He was, he was like, ah, I can't. I like, like he, it was like he was. Now listen, if you could see your sins for just a moment, that's the way you would, you would feel like that. That's the, that's the way you would experience it. But, but here's the thing. Your good works don't get you in, and your good works don't keep you in. The ground of Israel's restoration had nothing to do with them at all, and it has nothing to do with us at all, the ground of our salvation. Listen, the wayward son of Luke 15 was welcomed back because of the father, not because of his canned speech, no matter how sincere it may have been. Peter was welcomed back by the grace of Jesus, not because he went out and wept because of his act of betrayal. We get in and are kept in by the covenant mercies of the Lord. That means that the good news is all about him. If you start talking about the gospel and you wind up speaking about yourself, you have wandered from the gospel. It is all about what God has done in Jesus Christ. And this calls for particular repentance. For diminishing the finished work and continuing ministry of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Anytime you take the mentality, thanks Jesus, I got it from here. You have started to diminish his finished work and his continuing priestly work. Whenever that attitude enters into your mind, like I got this figured out. 
I've been around long enough. I know enough theology. I know enough Bible. I got this thing figured out, Jesus. No, what you see in the lives of the saints is that the older they get, the longer they walk with God, the more dependent they become upon the Lord, the more tender they become. How is it that at the end of Paul's life, he could call himself the chief of sinners? It wasn't because Paul became more sinful. He was actually being transformed by the grace of God. But it was, it was the fact that as he got older, his sin became more sinful in his eyes. He recognized the depths of his corruption. He recognized the continual patterns of his sin and his failures. And he could say that I'm the, I'm the worst of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. Not because he actually grew more sinful, but because his perception, his grasp of his sin grew more Pointed. Listen, you won't make much progress in the Christian life until you learn to relax into the Father's love as the sinful, broken person that you are. I'm going to say that again. You will never make much progress in the Christian life until you learn to relax into the Father's love as the sinful, broken person that you really are. Until you stop pretending, until you stop thinking that what gets God's smile over your life is your renewals or your trying harder or your promises or your whatever it is. You're doubling down your efforts or trying real hard or being real scrupulous. You know, that, that's the interesting thing. What happens? This is the pathway toward legalism and moralism. This is not the pathway that the Lord would have his people to follow. The Lord, listen, you won't be free until you recognize that God fulfills the covenant from both sides of the covenant. You understand this, right? Both sides of the covenant. God fulfills his side of the covenant, keeping his promises His promises to bless faithfulness and to curse unfaithfulness. But the wonder of the gospel is that the father sent his son into the world to take on human flesh, to become vulnerable to this world like you. He was like you in every way except sin. And the reason why he came was so that he could then uphold our side of the covenant. What do you think that Jesus was doing through his earthly life? He was living the life of righteousness that the covenant required. And what was Jesus doing in his death? He was suffering the the covenant curses that we warranted through our behaviors, our bad behaviors, through our idolatry. And so when you put the two together, Jesus satisfies the demands of the covenant On our behalf, such that all it requires from you is faith. All you have to do is trust in Christ as the one who did it all. He did all the work. He did all the heavy lifting. It was all his plan. It was all his doing. It was all his good intentions. It was all his mercy and his grace that got you where you are right now. That's good news. That is the good news that we see in this passage. We see that when we're at rock bottom, that's where we see that Jesus is the rock at the bottom. 
He's the Savior. We're the saved. He's the Redeemer. We're the redeemed. He's the keeper. We're the kept. He's the shepherd. We're the sheep. If we were able to keep and maintain our own lives, then we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. And it's one thing to see this passage punctuated with the priestly mediatorial ministry of Moses. But it's another thing to see your own life punctuated with the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. To see what he does in your behalf. To see the way he calls out your name before the Father. To consider the ways that he has taken away all of your sin. And has given you access afresh. Do you think that there is a sin or a failure that you commit that Jesus doesn't account for and speak over? The only time you see Jesus silent in the Gospels is when he's off in communion with the Father and when he is being falsely accused and condemned before his enemies. He won't speak up for himself. Why? So that he can speak up for you. That's the only time he's silent in the face of accusation is when the accusation is against him. When any accusation goes out against you, the teaching of scripture is that your defender rises up and blasts the accuser, regardless of whether the accusation is true or false. Even if it's true, he pleads your case. He speaks on your behalf. This is, this is the thing that we're going to see. Even Moses is going to run out of patience as the mediator. But the good news is that Jesus never will. He will never tire of making intercession for you. How many of you have ever gotten tired of praying for somebody? Oh, I'm the only one. I must be the only real prayer warrior in here, right? Like, nah, like we all get tired of, of you can get tired. How many of you get tired of praying for yourself? Right. Isn't it astonishing that Jesus never tires of praying for myriad of believers with their myriad of problems? Countless problems represented just in this little community right here. And Jesus never tires of interceding for you. (laughs) That's a savior. What a savior. Even Moses will run out of sympathy, but Jesus never will. He is the God who literally feels your pain. Who knows your sufferings. Who knows your afflictions. Do you feel weighed down with temptation right now? Jesus knows what it's like to face the heaviness of temptation. But to remain faithful. And he can bear you up. Are you feeling rejected by anybody in your life right now? Jesus knows what it's like to face rejection. And to never allow that rejection to steal an ounce of love from his heart. To grow bitterness within him. He never allowed it. And he's able to bear you up as you face the rejection of people who are supposed to love you, but they treat you bad. Regardless of what you're feeling, Jesus will never run out of sympathy. Why? Here's why. Because he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You know, the Lord uses uh, a number of synonyms for sin and corruption. He uses a number of synonyms 
in order to say to you, it doesn't matter what shows up in your life. There is no sin or transgression or iniquity or failure that will deter me from being gracious and merciful. This text shows us that the restoration of God's people is grounded in the Lord's covenant promises and the mediatorial work of Christ continues to appeal back to the covenant promises fulfilled in him. We get in by grace and we stay in by grace, but we need to see the glory of restoration in verses 29 through 35. Chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. Let's look at this. If you talk to many professing Christians in America, you may get the sense that they are content with simply having forgiveness from God. That's good enough. Just give me some forgiveness. Now, the Lord's forgiveness is amazing, truly. But it's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of a new and even more beautiful development in our lives. There is a greater end to salvation than forgiveness. The Lord wants to make you new. And he wants to make us new. To put it another way, the Lord doesn't just want to pay off the mortgage. He wants to renovate the house and come live in it. That's what he wants to do. To take up residence in his people. That's, that's the longing that God has in Exodus chapters 32 through 34. He ultimately wants to dwell among his people. And he's like, if I'm going to dwell among these people, they're going to need some renewal. They're going to need some renewal. This is the big theme of the passage and our clue as to where the text is leading us. Chapter 33, verse 11 says this. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. If you listen to how people speak of heaven and glory, one of the things that you notice is that all they do is mention all of the amazing things that are going to be in heaven. And all of the bad things that aren't going to be in heaven. That's, that's mostly what they anticipate. And here's the thing. They anticipate everything except God. But the glory of restoration, y'all, is communion with God. John Owen said this. Would a soul continually eye his everlasting tenderness and compassion? It could not bear an hour's absence from him. If you could really get a sense of what God is like and who God is and all of his tenderness and mercy and glory and compassion, you wouldn't be able to bear a moment's absence from him. The glory of restoration is that we get him. It's not the amenities. It's him. It's not the blessings. It's him. We don't just get the promise. We get the promiser. We don't just get deliverance. We get the deliverer. We don't just get comfort, we get the comforter. The Lord himself is our great reward in the end. And that's what God longs to restore, that connection with his people. And the Apostle Paul made this connection in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's an amazing passage. Paul is comparing the transfiguration of Jesus with its background in the book of Exodus, right? So when Moses' face shines at Mount Sinai, what Paul does is he riffs on that and he says that that was, a, that was an indicator pointing you to the transfiguration of Jesus. Where Jesus winds up on the mountain and, and Moses and Elijah appear to him 
And that's at that point where, where Jesus says to, to Moses and Elijah, we, I won't be needing your services anymore. I won't be needing your services anymore. I'm going to become the mediator for my people. I'm going to become the prophetic voice for my people. And he lets them down. But then Paul doesn't stop with the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus like literally shows in his glory and brilliance to his people. He doesn't stop there. He says, no, 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 no. This is the direction that things are going for God's people. It's amazing. Because Paul says that the experience of radiant glory has been democratized among the people of faith because one greater than Moses ascended. But he came back down, not with the law, but with grace. Heaven and earth have embraced in the Son. And this is what 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says. And we all with unveiled face. And we all with unveiled face. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Do you see it? We are being transformed into the same glorious image by beholding the glory of the Lord, by communion with him. And, and, and if I could just throw an application at you, I want to say this. The people in your life should see you shining. They should see your face shining. Let me get a little bit more specific. Complaining is in fashion these days, right? It's in fashion. It was in fashion before COVID. Now it's even more in fashion. Griping and complaining and moaning and, you know, just going on and on, meditating on all the things that aren't what we want them to be. That's not shining. That's obscuring. You know what shines? is joy in the face of of sorrows, joy in the face of affliction. Why? Because you're tapped into the source because you are really living in communion with the Lord. You see, you can't, a shining face is not manipulable. You can't fake it. It has to come from real communion with the Lord. Only he can make your face shine. We are being transformed. It's the same language that is used of Jesus is used of us, metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. What's missing in Paul's description, however, is the fear. Israel was afraid when Moses came down with the shining face. It was scary. You'd be scared, too, if I just showed up one Sunday and I was like, shining face, right? Like, what, what is happening? Everyone would run out, right? What's missing in Paul's account is the fear. There's no fear in this, in this transformative encounter. So what do we do with a passage like this? I want you to think about all that we're taught in this passage. Chief among these truths is that our God is a God of restoration. And so our community should be a community of restoration. It should be the kind of community that is a safe landing pad for people with all different kinds of stories, with all different kinds of sins, who have failed in many ways, who are trying to figure it all out and sort through it. This should be the place of all places where they can find the, the, the touch of the Lord that can restore. Let us never grow bitter or cynical about the Lord's ability to restore. We need to push back to sin. Don't be cynical about the Lord's ability to restore anyone in your community. And don't be cynical about the Lord's ability to restore you. Sometimes you can just get baked in and all you see is flesh and blood. 
And the Lord is constantly telling us the battle's not against flesh and blood. Is there a hard case that you're trying to engage right now? It needs to, it, it's ready for some, some gospel infusion of hope. And allow that hope to infuse your prayers and the way that you intercede for the people around you. That's the next thing, too. I want you to see that it was, it was, it was no small thing, this interceding that Moses did for the people. How, how can you intercede for a people that frustrates you so bad and hurts you so deeply? This is the same group of people that was complaining about Moses and wanted him gone as leader. They were, already, they were ready to set up a lynch mob to get rid of Moses. How do, you, how do you maintain a heart posture where you want and long for God's restoring touch in the lives of your neighbors, even the ones who frustrate you the most? you got to stay in touch with just how far he has brought you. You got to stay in touch. Remember that picture, if you could just get a glimpse for a moment. But God doesn't even give you that full measure glimpse of how broken you are in comparison to his glory. He patiently restores you and reveals your sins to you at a pace that you can manageably repent of. <laughs> There's still so much that goes left unmentioned. But the bottom line is it is by tapping into all that God is for you in Jesus Christ as your mediator that you begin to understand your identity as a mediator for your neighbors. Everybody loves to, res- to be restored when they have fallen, right? Everybody loves restoration when they're the one who has fallen. How many of us are going to continue to love restoration when we're the ones who are called to do the restoring? That is the call of this passage, to glory in the mediator, to remember that he is up to greater things. He did remain true to his promise. He told them he would do greater marvels than he even did up to that point in the world. And the greater marvel is the gospel. The greater marvel is that a just God can forgive unjust people by pouring out his just wrath on his son. The greater marvel is that God is emptying tombs. The greater marvel is that we're headed for a new heaven and a new earth. Let us keep our focus there and try to do the work of mediation by the grace of the Lord in our neighborhoods. Let's pray. Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.